Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your concerns, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis and other things. I posted on the YouTube community tab well over 24 hours ago. Uh, this is a big one. Roger Federer has retired. I asked for your questions on that. You brought them. And also, this is your U.S. Open wrap-up mailbag. I never feel like my coverage is actually over until I do a mailbag because I've I've done the post-match and the, the previews. I've done the Monday match analysis following the men's final. I've done the Steve Flink interviews, uh, but it never feels like it's wrapped up until I answer all of these comments and do that post-major mailbag. So uh, looking forward to it. I got a ton of comments, over 100, way too many to get to in a single mailbag, unfortunately. Well, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I always, you know, it's always nice when I can get to all of them, but uh, not going to happen here. I'm going to go about an hour. First one is uh, the top liked comment here. It's from Jared Gonzalez. Hey, Gil, assuming all majors for the big three remain the way they are, do you think Fetter still has an argument for GOAT? What are valid and sound arguments for him? Well, uh, big assumption to start your, the comment here, assuming everybody remains the same, but I will go with it. Let's go with it. It is funny because one of the common refrains when it came to the GOAT debate was, oh, you can't call a race before it's over. We don't try to figure out, we don't say in the middle of the Kentucky Derby or a Formula One race, we don't say who, who won. We just wait until it ends, and then and then we go from there. Uh, so that was one of the, that was never something I said, but I know Andy Roddick and some others have have always said that. So now for the first time, we actually can say that one of them is done, and we can reflect and and look back at what they've done. However, I still think that that goat, uh, you know, the greatest of all time as a as a term as a phrase, I think it's it's complex. And uh, I'll get to that in a moment, and I'll kind of uh, revisit how I feel about uh, the GOAT debate with Fetter being done. Uh, but I also want to take your comment at face value, uh, this comment at face value. And I, I want to say, you know, empirically, uh, let's talk about where Fetter has an advantage over Nadal and Djokovic when it comes to uh, who had you know, a better career because that's a very straightforward thing. Like when they're all retired, we are going to be able to probably discern who had the best career, who accomplished the most in their career. The question is, is that a goat? Uh, and that's where it gets complicated. I'll cover that in a second. But uh, as far as Federer's career accomplishments, where he's going to find an edge over Nadal and Djokovic is his period of dominance. His period of dominance uh, when he had most consecutive weeks at world number one, 237 weeks. He made 23 consecutive major semifinals, 36 consecutive quarterfinals. It's a level of dominance of the tour that Nadal and Djokovic never achieved. Now, it's you know explained away by basically the existence of 
the big three at the same time. But nonetheless, Federer has these things. Another thing is the Wimbledon titles. I think that means something. If you're going to anoint, and I completely understand that some folks get super annoyed with Wimbledon's kind of holier-than-thou vibe and you know, putting that tournament on a pedestal as if it's more important than the others. I, I totally get that. But if you're going to pick one, if you're going to say that one tournament has more historical gravitas and prestige than the others, it's, it's probably Wimbledon. Hate, hate to say it. Again, I get it. If you don't vibe with Wimbledon, I get it. I, I, I do. But uh, eight Wimbledon titles still um, still takes the cake in that area. Not saying that grass is like a more important surface, just Wimbledon. Wimbledon as a tournament, it it holds a lot of weight. Most players grow up and dream of winning Wimbledon. Djokovic did, uh, Federer did, and Nadal did. So there's that. There's uh, there's an extra prestige there. So I think that's it. Uh, I might be missing some. You guys know that I'm not like a stats nerd in that way. I'm not trying to, you know, figure out who the the goat is all the time with uh with the spreadsheet and all the different stats. That's not me. Um but but I think those are the big ones. You know, the dominance is really the dominance in the mid two thousands is kind of what Federer has over Nadal and Djokovic. Uh but then you get to kind of goat and and you have variables that are and, and gray areas, you know, with Federer coming up and, you know, being older than Nadal and Djokovic, having an, an a kind of an era uh, where where they weren't in the mix. And, you know, going first, I think, had some major some major disadvantages. I think Federer being older than Nadal and Djokovic, being the chased instead of the chaser, and uh, being born in an era, you know, growing up in an era um, that was kind of passed by, right? If you look at 2001 Wimbledon, Federer is you know, basically coming to net, you know, he's a servant volleyer. He's kind of a, a child of the nineties. Like, I think there are real disadvantages to Federer being, you know, the generation that coming up in the generation that he came up and some real advantages and some real advantages. So there's both. So that's just one example. And I can go on and on about why you can challenge the idea that the most accomplished player of all time, the player with the with the best records and uh, the player who had the you know the most decorated career, uh, may or may not have um, have the kind of automatic rights to the title of goat. And that is not to say that anyone else should be goat. It is to perhaps say that nobody should really just be goat. Um, that would be maybe where we're at. I think it's complicated in the women's game. When I'm trying to have an elevated conversation about tennis, I use tears. I like tears. I think that's the best way to understand how good tennis players are. You sort them into tears. I do that all the time when I, you know, it's, the way I cover the sport, I think it's the best. And I'll give you an example. Right now, who is the best player in the world? Right now. I don't have an answer for that question. 
I don't know who the best player in the world is. What I can tell you is I think that there is a group of players who are tier one players who are the best right now. And I think that group is Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz, and then here's the debatable one, but I think he's still in there, and Daniil Medvedev. Now, on, on clay, you kind of switch out Medvedev, you put in Tsitsipas, right? Uh, that's the tier one right now. I think those are the best players. Who's the best? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. Who's better? Kasparud or Matteo Berrettini? I don't want to answer that question. What I do want to say is I think they're about the same. Right now, I think they're the same player. Same tier. That is, I think, the best way to put this. Because, and, and now we can zoom out. And we can look at it historically. And you can put players in tiers historically. And obviously, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic occupy the same tier. They're the same. Right? Tier 1. All-time great. Historically great. Generationally great. That's where they are. Um... And, you know, by doing that, you eliminate all of the conversations about the little things that have altered the course of history in tennis that may decide who ultimately edges out uh, the the three, the big three, and who becomes the, the most accomplished player of all time. Look at the things that have affected this. You know, first of all, you have things like singular points, match points, swinging one way or the other. You have COVID. You have vaccines now affecting this stuff. Nadal skipped the U.S. Open in 2020. Djokovic has missed two slams this year. A virus. So isn't it easier and arguably smarter to just put the players in tears instead of trying to wrap your brain around decades of results and history and trying to figure out, you know, how, what order they belong in. If you put them on a list, one, two, three, do we have to reduce them to that? Is it entirely necessary? If it is to you, you do you. But uh, it's not for me. Maybe that'll change. I'm, I have an open mind. Maybe the three of them retire, and when that happens or something happens, I will feel like one of them's the GOAT. I, I don't know. Maybe that'll happen. It's just not how I feel right now. All right, let's go to Jack. Hey, Gil, for a while we had Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, and Zverev as top four in the world, and it looked like the players with the best neutralizing and consistency from behind the baseline were dominating tennis. Do you think with more aggressive and less steady players like Alcaraz and Kyrgios having more success, we will see this change and maybe a new style will be the dominant one in the future? It's a great question. I love to think about these things. I don't think that aggression is maybe the best way to put it, but I do think, and I would get rid of Nadal in this because Nadal has actually become as aggressive as 
they come as a player. He he really has. He's he's no longer um he's he's no longer a consistent, you know, uh I don't even know what to what to label Djokovic, Medvedev and, and Zverev in terms of uh putting it into a phrase, but I don't know, consistent baseliner. Um what 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 term did Jack use? Uh, best neutralizing and consistency from behind the baseline. Sure. Uh, he, here's what I will say. The net is going to come back into play. It, it has to. Because hitting through Medvedev and Zverev and Djokovic is, is such a nightmare. You know, getting through their defenses and trying to deal with their shot tolerance and their trading, their fitness... Obviously, the movement comes into play. It's so taxing to try to figure out a way to win points. And what I do think we will see in this next maybe 10 or so years of tennis is uh, there's going to be a response to that, in my opinion, with uh, a player like Alcaraz being like, look, you're not going to get away with the defense because I'm going to come forward and finish it net. And you're not going to be able to defend that. So Alcaraz kind of can bring the offense to the next level in that respect. Uh, but he also has the potential to be just as stout defensively as Nadal, Medvedev, and and uh, or, or Djokovic, Medvedev, and you know younger Nadal, Zverev. Uh, Zverev shouldn't really be in this because his movement also kind of lags behind the other three. But I, I, I totally get lumping Zverev in there, right? Because he's a guy who, in a baseline rally, drops back his court position, kind of builds a wall, builds an impenetrable wall. And there's going to be a reaction to that with players coming forward. That's what I'm confident in. And yeah, Alcaraz, Kyrgios, certainly players who are at the forefront of that. From uh, Nanad, Hey, Gil, love your content. Subscriber for two years. Thank you. Uh, is Alcaraz's win proof that he is basically impossible to be worn down physically? It seems like the fittest guy on tour right now, on par with Novak and Rafa in their best days. And has there ever been a better mover in history? I'd argue that maybe young Rafa was on the same level. But other than that, uh, nobody else comes to mind. Uh, first part of your question we did see, I mean, look, Alcaraz's physicality, I think it cracked a little bit in the final. We did see a little bit of fatigue set in. I do believe that. He he still won the match, but that doesn't mean he wasn't feeling it in the legs and that he wasn't heavy. I think he was. Uh, but it's not going to get any harder than that. It's just not. He'll likely never spend more time on court at a major than what he just did. So essentially, yes. Essentially, what you're looking at with Carlos Alcaraz is endurance, not in the equation. You can just throw it out the window. He's never going to lose. He's he's probably not going to lose because he played for too long and got tired. So, uh, yeah, throw it out. Not in the equation. He can go probably for as long as uh, as long as he needs to. Because if that's what it takes, like back to back to back five setters, one of them was over five hours, 
two of them finished after 2 a.m. If that's what it takes for Alcaraz to get a little tired, he's probably in the clear. Second part of the question, is he the best mover in history? Yeah, I, I think young Rafa is there. I think, although I didn't watch him, young Michael Chang is probably there. Um, Borg, watching him on YouTube, I don't think so. I don't think so, but maybe um, young Monfils was pretty ridiculous. Uh, but I actually think Alcaraz might be a little quicker. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, it kind of goes back to, I, I don't, I don't mean to connect the dots here, but it kind of goes back to tears. I don't know if it's uh clear that he is in a class of his own, but he's definitely, he's moved as well. He moves as fast as anyone we've ever seen. That's definitely clear. Uh, from Sports Fanatic, are you surprised Roger is retiring after Laver Cup instead of at home in Basel? No, really not surprised given the state of, of his health. But, you know, it does tell you something. It tells you that uh, he's not all the way there. And we're not going to see, we shouldn't expect to see Federer at 100% at Laver Cup. Um, but no, I think it's a much better, it's going to be, it's going to be better for him this way in all likelihood. Uh, the chance to play doubles, um, the chance to retire in the presence of the big four, you know, the, the players who he has competed against throughout his career and, you know, and the next generation. Like, envision this. Envision he goes to Basel. In the first round, he draws... Ooh, who am I gonna? Okay, ready? We're gonna we're gonna look up Basel entry list. Let's see if we can let's see if we can uh, take a look at this. Um, okay, unseated player, right? Federer would be unseated. Let's say he draws an unseated players. Uh, okay, he draws hmm, Albert Ramos Vinolas in the first round. He's playing first round of Basel, and he loses to. And he'd probably lose. You know, if he can't move, he's not gonna beat Albert Ramos Vinolas. And what, he's just going to go ba go to Basel and end his career with the first-round defeat to Albert Ramos-Vinolas? Like, is that really as productive as, like, is that going to make for as good an ending as him, you know, going to this kind of half-exhibition half Lever Cup with, you know, full pageantry and, you know, it's just it's just going to be better. It's, it's going to be better in every way, in my opinion. Uh, hopefully he goes to Basel, maybe. I don't know if he'll do that or not, but maybe they'll honor him in Basel and he'll be there. I mean, it is the tournament. He was a ball boy there, and that's kind of the start of everything, which, by the way, I love. I, I, as, a, as a fellow ball boy myself, I absolutely love the fact that Federer, who has you know, become Roger Federer, still talks about ball boying uh, in his you know, retirement message after uh, winning 20 majors and being one of the greatest of all time. He still talks about ball bowling. I love that. All right. Um, Radomir Stanev says, Hi, Gil. My question is, what do you think about the future of the one-handed backhand? Will that shot survive or almost all top players will use the two-hander? This is interesting to me in light of Roger's retirement announcement and because very few players of the new generation play the one-hander. 
and then some kind words. I appreciate that. This is probably the most asked mailbag question. Quick answer. One-handed backhand. Don't think it's going anywhere. Big advantage that it has over the two-hander. Still hits a heavier ball. It's still, they, the, the best one-handers, they still get more on it. I still think it's a, oftentimes a better backhand on clay. I know the king of clay hits a two-hander, but I stand by my statement. Um, I still think it's probably a better backhand on clay and, uh, there's going to be a place for it. And also, you know, some players just, it's more natural for them, right? Like I'll tell you how my coach developed juniors. I don't know if this is, you know, a shared kind of philosophy with a lot of other coaches, but, but you know, what, what Chris Lewitt would look at is if a player is not using their left hand and they're trying to hit a two hander, but naturally the left hand is just kind of along for the ride, then they should probably hit a one-hander because that's their natural backhand. So, I, you know, I think that... Um, I think there's always going to be players who feel more natural with the one-hander, and there's real advantages in the modern baseline game. It's not like... It's not like the advantages of the one-hander, because a lot of people say like, oh, you volley better, you slice better, you, you drop shot better. Those are crap. Like, let's be real. I agree that those are advantages of the one-hander, but if those were the real only advantages of the one-hander, put it in the bin. Throw it in the trash. Uh, th that is not a good enough reason, right? At the end of the day, 90% of your backhands are drive backhands from the baseline. So in order for the one-hander to be, you know, actual useful, actually useful, you know, you need there needs to be advantages from the back of the court when you're hitting topspin backhands. But for the one-hander, luckily, there is. The, the You know, biomechanically, you can hit a heavier ball. Your RPMs can be higher, which is why nobody hits backhands bigger than Gasquet and Team and Vavrinka. Um, you know, those are the biggest backhands. And there's a reason for that. From Paul, uh, one thing I noticed throughout the U.S. Open was Nadal being strangely silent and rarely grunting. Do you think this has anything to do with how Nadal seemed so uncharacteristically off throughout? This got 11 likes, which which is a lot here on this uh, in terms of this comment section. Yeah, it, it usually means he's not feeling it. I gotta say, I I want to say like this is a weird comment. And no, but, but yeah, it's, there's some merit there when Nadal isn't grunting. He's usually, uh, not fully into it. And, uh, it's not usually a good sign for him when the grunt goes away. Um, like one of the most crucial, it, it was weird. Um, break point Tiafo when they were still on serve in the fourth set he hits one big cross-court backhand where he grunted. And then on the next ball, he dumped it into, into the net, trying to go down the line. Same backhand, same point, and he didn't grunt. And to me, it just screamed he got nervous on that backhand, and he was just a ball of tension as he hit it. Uh, and he just buried it. So, yeah, it's... It, it kind of does play into the idea that he just was completely unconfident and lacking some of the intensity and the fearlessness 
that he needs on the court. From Papa Gringo. Uh, Hello, Gil. Love your comment. Uh, Fetter interestingly said to tennis, quote, I love you and will never leave you. This could mean many, many things, of course, from coaching to commentary to Legends events, continued exhibition matches all over the world. What contributions do you see Federer making, say, three to five years from now? I really don't think he'll commentate. I really don't think he'll coach. Uh, I think that he will get involved on the business side of tennis. Uh, I think he will use his abilities as a statesman um, and as a businessman which he's kind of, uh, it's a world he's already forayed into. You know, him and Tony Gottsick leaving IMG, which was, you know, his agency, uh, starting their own firm called Teammate, launching the Laver Cup, investing in the shoe company on, um, investing in, uh, I believe, UTR, uh, Universal Tennis. Uh, I think that, you know, Federer is going to try to tackle the business side of tennis. I don't exactly know what that's going to look like, but... Um, that is my hunch. That is my sense. I think, uh, you know, being the family man that he is, I doubt he has any interest in being on tour as far as the travel is concerned. Maybe when his kids get old, that kind of thing will change. Um, and as a commentator, I think he's way too nice to do that job. I don't think he wants to, you know sit there and critique players' games and, you know, be honest about tennis matches and put his kind of uh, opinions out there. Like, Federer's never been about putting his opinions out there. It's really not been his thing. So uh, I would say hard no on commentary and coaching. Uh, yes, I think he's going to play a lot of exhibitions, and uh, I think he'll get involved on the business side. From Matt, Gil, I recently had a dream that you and me were working in a video game shop. Lots of tennis players came in and we were helping them out. But when Casper Ruud came in, you got upset with him and threw him out saying you didn't like his attitude. What do you think this means? Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I apologize for my actions in your dream. Um, I would ask you, what did Casper do? Was Casper being rude? Um, because that wouldn't really be like him. However, you know, rude can be, he can be a little feisty. He can be a little salty, you know, which I like. Don't get me wrong. You know, when, when he's kind of going blow for blow with Nick, you know, poking jabs at, at Kyrgios, I'm all for that, you know, because I don't think he should be Nick Kyrgios' punching bag. I don't think that at all. He should swing back. Yeah, I love it. But, you know, maybe Casper, in your hypothetical dream, maybe he got a little sensitive about something that, that I've said in the past. Maybe he maybe he was coming at me. I, I don't know, you know, but I'm I'm surprised. I'm surprised to hear that because, you know, I'm good with Casper. I have nothing. I really think he's... I, I love him off the court. You know, if he's going to walk into a video game shop and I'm working, I, I'm expecting him, I'm expecting us to get on very well. So I don't know, you know, you, you got to give me more detail than that. 
All right, moving on. Uh, Iganazzo, hi, Gil, with Federer's retirement and Alcaraz's win in the U.S. Open. I feel like we're kind of at a crossroads point regarding tennis hegemony. Uh, how do you think these two specific events affecting both Rafa and Djokovic from now on in their respective careers? Thanks so much and love your content. Appreciate that. So, uh, Federer retiring doesn't affect anything really because he was not a contender in the last, you know, in the last two years. The last time he was a contender was coming into the Australian Open in 2020. And then he was kind of injured and still made the semis, right? Uh, I mean, does Federer's retirement maybe make things more real for Rafa? Maybe. Uh, Djokovic, I think, is is very much, in terms of the health, you know, the good bill of health that he's had as of late, uh, I, I don't think retirement is even in his brain right now. I really don't. For Rafa, I think it probably is because of, you know, mostly because of all of the, the health issues that he's had. I think he, you know, he's felt his age uh, for a long time now. With that being said, it's been a constant throughout his career. So it's nothing uh, all that unique, although, and albeit more extreme uh, here in 2022 than it has been. So, you know, I do think for Rafa, it, it was probably, he probably felt, you know, emotionally a reaction to Federer leaving uh, the sport. Uh, because he's been through so much with with Roger and, and all that. Uh, but I, I really don't think it affects anything. Alcaraz winning the U.S. Open, that is far more significant because it's going, you know, the experience is going to help Alcaraz heading into 2022, almost undoubtedly. You know, there were many scenarios where Alcaraz would go into next season still having not won a slam, not knowing if he has the ability to do it, uh, perhaps, you know, entering, you know, these situations and, you know, having having to grapple with certain ideas of, you know, can I do this or not, right? Uh, and then, you know, the, the more, and you can ask, like, Felix about this. You can ask... Um, Dominic team about this, right? The the longer you go not achieving what you're trying to achieve, the more the pressure builds. I know I talked about this in the Monday match analysis, talking about Alcaraz and Rude kind of uh getting to these elevated stages so quickly, th there wasn't really any time for that pressure to build. So Alcaraz just getting that weight off of his shoulders of being a major champion being a world number one already. Uh, yes, initially there might be some pressure, you know, coming into the Australian Open, being one of the favorites, but, you know, he's starting to get the, you know, gain those experiences already. So I believe that is going to make Alcaraz more dangerous right away because those questions won't be in his head mentally. And therefore he is going to be a more staunch rival for Djokovic and Nadal than he would have been otherwise. From Ashish. Hey, Gil, how much significance can be given to Alcaraz becoming the youngest world number one as there were many mitigating circumstances this year with Djokovic unable to play many important tournaments, Wimbledon not having ranking points, and key injuries to Zverev and Nadal? Good question. 
valid question. It you know it comes down to the current ranking being one that is has a lot of parity, right? So nobody has dominated men's tennis this year. Full stop. Nobody. Zero players. And when that happens, the world number one, everyone gets closer to that number one ranking spot because nobody dominated. Uh, it, it shrinks the margin between the top and everybody else. That's just how the math works. So Alcaraz right now uh, is at number one with 6,740 points. And throughout recent history, that number of points hasn't been good enough to be number one throughout the 2010s, certainly. Um, so I, I looked into this. Uh, first, I, I went to you know a random date. I went to September, and right now we're in September. I went to September 2011 because that was kind of the beginning of really big three domination, uh, big four, you know, in, in a way, but mostly big three domination because Murray was very good at this point as well. Um, so I'll tell you, Novak, obviously he, one of the best years of his career in, in 2011, he had 13,920 points, almost double what Alcaraz has right now. Uh, Rafa was world number two. He had 11,420 points. Roger had 8,380 points. That's three players with more than what Alcaraz has now. Uh, Murray was number four, and he had 6,535 points. So slightly, but not much less than what Alcaraz has. Nearly four players in September 2011. Um, so in that way, yeah. It, it's been, you know, it was just easier for Alcaraz to get there in this current landscape. However, let me throw a wrench in that. I also went back to 2005 because the, the real notable thing here is not that Alcaraz became number one. First of all, we all knew that was going to happen. Second of all, becoming number one is, is great. You know, it's a huge accomplishment, but it's, it's not quite as significant as finishing a year number one, you know, where, where it means you are the best player for a year, you know, for a calendar season. Um, the, the main significance here is that Alcaraz, in terms of the history books is what I'm saying. The main significance in the history books is that he's the youngest world number one in history. That's big. So I wanted to see if Nadal would have been the youngest number one in history. Had he been, you know, done the same thing in 2022? And the answer, it turns out, is pretty much no. Pretty much no. Because I went to the rankings in September of 2005. And uh, Federer had 6,975 points. Nadal was number two with 4,475. So Rafa at 19 years old in September of his breakout season was in fact worse in terms of rankings points than Alcaraz. Now, I apologize if there is some stipulation here that I'm not aware of. Uh, were there less points to be had? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, that could be the case. And if that's the case, my bad. 
Um, but I'm not aware of, of there being an inconsistency there. All that to say that Alcaraz really is a historically great 19-year-old and that, you know, he is deserving of becoming the youngest world number one ever. He is um, because, you know, you compare him to Nadal here and he has more points. Uh, I, I guess I could go back and, you know, put him side to side with, you know, Becker and uh, and Borg. And, and see see what they looked like in terms of rankings points. But uh, then it becomes complicated because I do know that rankings, you know, the rankings were way different back then. And uh, ultimately, uh, we probably shouldn't uh, bend our brains and um, spend so much time and energy on this because it's obvious that Alcaraz has been historically great. All right, this one from Le Les Brett Bros. Or, oh, no, it's from Francois. Francois is how it's signed. Okay. Uh, okay, in your opinion, was 2004 through 2007 Federer's level of play the best ever, or was it surpassed later by Rafa's or Novak's? Two, also, do you think his level dropped after his dominant years, or was it more due to the fact that Rafa and Novak reached their prime, respectively, in uh, 2008 and 2011? Thanks, Gil, and keep up the awesome work. So these questions... I made sure I wanted to definitely, and by the way, this got a lot of likes, 14 likes. These are phenomenal questions. Really great questions. So great and so big that I feel pretty insufficient in answering them. Now, part of that, you know, maybe is because um, 2004 through 2007, I I was still very young, you know, I've still, you know, mostly my experience of, of those years are uh, mainly highlights, you know, YouTube highlights, and I, I really don't feel like, unless you live it, you know, you gain a, an extra level of understanding when you live it, and I unfortunately did not. Um, I, was, I was a little young still at that time. I think the first season that I lived was probably the 2009 season feel like I lived it. So I kind of just missed it. Anyway, um, this is exactly, you know, the fact that these questions are so difficult is exactly why crowning uh, the most, you know, whichever player uh, has the best career, crowning them the GOAT can be complicated. You know, it's questions like this, which are very, very difficult. But I, I just think stylistically it's fascinating because uh, Federer... You know, Federer did change a lot. He changed a lot. And I don't know if he was worse or if it was a, a, a positive adaptation, if it was a strained adaptation where, you know, the game was kind of passing him by and he kind of had to had to make certain adjustments. Um, I mean, there are more questions on this. Anyway, um, in reality, I would love to dig into this. What I would love to do also is ask some, you know, some players... You know, keep these questions in mind. I'd love to know, you know, what does Andy Roddick think about this question? He played Federer. He um, played kind of, uh, you know, he experienced the early 2010s as well, you know, in a big way. He played Novak and Rafa um, in, in these years. And he's also a great tennis mind. So I'd, I'd love to ask, you know, uh, an Andy Roddick, even a Jim Courier who— you know, who, who watched carefully, I'd love to ask 
a very honest Federer, what he thinks. He wouldn't answer the second one. He wouldn't answer the second one. But I would like to ask him, you know, I'd love to know if Roger feels like he was playing, you know, his best tennis in 2004 through 2007 or not. Um, I don't know if he'd be answer honestly or not, but uh, these are really good questions. I'd love to ask uh, Steve Flink and, and uh, you know, someone like Joel Drucker or, or Amy. I'd, I'd love to ask a lot of people these questions and, and see what their thoughts are. But uh, they're really, really tough questions. And I don't think anyone necessarily has a definitive answer. I, I feel unqualified, personally, to, to take a stab at it. From Jack, hello, Gil. If you were to choose seven opponents for Federer to play on his hopefully soon-to-be farewell tour, whom would you pick? I'm sure D uh, David Ferrer would oblige. I enjoyed the courtside analysis for the radio as well as the incredible content. That means a lot. Thank you. Um, seven opponents. Let's just run through it. I haven't prepared for this question. Definitely Del Potro. Did you say outside of the big three? Okay, so let's run it back with Djokovic. Run it back with Nadal. Uh, Del Potro. Sampras. Um, I would like to see him play Stan in Switzerland. I'll make that five. Don't have much interest in... Hewitt, don't have much interest in Roddick, um, relatively. I would like to see, oh, did I add Murray? Yeah, play Murray, play Murray, no doubt. Um, I have one more. It's a tough one. I would go, you know, I should probably give love to, to one of the older guys. You know, him and Nalbandian played a lot of great matches. But, um, you know, Agassi would be in contention here for the, uh, for the answer to this question. It's so tough. Oh, you know what? You know what? I'm going to throw a curveball here. My seventh guy is, is Alcaraz. Yeah. Just to see them share the court. I think that would be special to have that moment. There's my seven. All right, another uh, really good one on Fetter, which nobody liked, but I've gotten this question before, actually, and, and it's, a, it's an interesting one. Hey, Gil, I've been waiting to hear your opinion on this forever. By the way, this is from TV Total Forever. I've been waiting to hear your opinion on this forever because this question has been on my mind since 2007. Why would Fetter, the absolute superior player in 04, 05, 06, change his forehand swing so dramatically in 2007? Was he feeling the game changing? Did he feel like he couldn't hang with what was the greatest shot thus far in tennis, his forehand? I feel like ever since 07-08, he was pressing on that shot a little more, where he was swinging whip like in the years prior, his forehand, uh, and in years pri prior, his forehand would actually be his downfall in some of his later career finals. Uh, they put U.S. Open 2015, Wimbledon 14-15, because he couldn't rely, especially on the running forehand, as much. So uh, this is inarguable. Like, the forehand looks way different. You know, as Federer's career gone on, it changed. Um, it And some of the changes were as followed. His take back got shorter. 
His take back got lower. It was a little bit higher up. Uh, the elbow dropped. The wrist dropped as his career progressed. His finish got a little bit higher, I would say. And he started to come through the ball not quite as flat. You know, brushing up a little bit more. Uh, aesthetically, the forehand started to look a little bit more wristy. Although that is kind of, uh, you know, that's not a technical term. You know, maybe coaches would get mad at me for that. I don't know. Uh, he started to straighten out the arm a little bit more, I think, at contact. You know, hit with more kind of extension. And by the way, I think that's why it started to kind of appear more uh, wristier, windshield wipery. So yeah, the forehand changed. There's no doubt about it. And uh, it remained... And this has to be said, it remained one of the best forehands in the game, undoubtedly. But uh, did the consistency waver a little bit? Did it kind of fall off? I think so. I think that's accurate. That's my observation. Why did he change? There's a couple of uh, potentials here. You know, the first potential is that um, he... Felt like he needed to get more spin to succeed on uh, changing court surfaces. Now, I'm not convinced that there has been, you know, a mass slowing down of of the courts uh, in, in the 2010s. In fact, I don't think that happened. But I think compared to when Federer came up, the courts did slow down a little bit. But also the styles changed. Right, you just had more of a baseline style, and uh, maybe you know Federer did want to win that Roland Garros. Maybe he felt like he wanted to get more topspin on the forehand, and and he adjusted accordingly. Uh, maybe he felt like he had less time, and he needed to shorten up his swing because he felt like the speed of the game was increasing. Uh, maybe it was it had to do with the change in technology that um, he also. Uh, went with in 2007. I forget the exact details, but his racket changed slightly, and and that was part of it. Uh, ultimately, though, I do not know. I do not know why it is. Um, oh, last point on this important one. I'm glad I didn't forget. Here is a a, a very probable explanation. When you play for that long, your strokes start to naturally evolve. They they just change. And uh, I don't think Novak's forehand looks the same as it did when uh, when he came up. In fact, it definitely doesn't look the same. And I don't think it looks the same right now as it did in 2011 either. And I don't think Nadal's forehand looks the same either. No, definitely not. So could it be that you play long enough and your strokes just, they they naturally don't stay the same? You know, that might be it. Uh, this is another really interesting question, though. All right, this one from Nathan. Kyrgios was understandably gutted after coming up short and falling in the quarters. With that in mind, how do you think he will respond result-wise at the Australian Open? In my mind, while he has had a great while he has had great results this year, scar tissue from a loss like this uh, can last a long time for some players, and I imagine especially for someone as emotionally as emotional as Nick. That is not how I see it. Not how I see it. The way I see it 
is that it speaks volumes that Nick Kyrgios was willing to show the world that he cared about the outcome of this match and that he that it meant a lot to him and that he failed that he wanted to win that he gave it his all and he failed because for so many years it felt like that was Kyrgios's worst fear is that the last thing he ever wanted to do was lose while looking like he was trying and i don't know what it was you know obviously there was something going on there but you know for him to say i wanted this really 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 bad and i didn't get it uh that just confirms to me that he has as a tennis player changed a lot mentally that's what it showed me and and nothing else now would i like him to maybe control his rage more after the match yeah i'm not like outraged by racket smashing you know that but um i i i do think less of it when the match is over um i do think a little bit less of it um because you know i don't know but anyway i mean he can he can do him i'm again i'm not i'm not a moral racket smashing um i i don't i don't take huge issue with it but I'm also not going to be like, it's a great thing that Nick Kyrgios has completely obliterated all of his rackets after losing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in between on that. Uh, but as a competitor, I think it spoke volumes, and I don't think there's going to be scar tissue. From Sergio, hey Gil, this uh, question probably concerns both topics. That refers to Federer and the U.S. Open. So it appears we're finally transitioning from the big three era to the next legends, probably Alcaraz included era. And as much as I'm excited for what that might bring, I can't help but wonder whether the first years of said next era could be significantly less engaging when the slam race and goat debate aren't on the line in every single major tournament that takes place as it has been for the last couple years. Even if Alcaraz or another player completely dominates the tour, it will take them several years before they could challenge for the most important record set by the big three. What are your thoughts about it? I think my thoughts on that. So what you're saying is that without historical significance, the interest in tennis is going to suffer. And uh, I think more, more than anything, what drives the interest, especially the mainstream interest in tennis, uh, you know, beyond the bubble, that's going to watch and going to love it no matter what. You know, the, the diehards and the kind of inner circle of tennis fandom, you know, you, you don't need to worry about them. It doesn't matter what's happening. You know, they're, they're in it, right? Probably most people who watch my channel fall into that category. But for everybody else, it's not, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's historical significance that draws them in. Uh, I think it's more star building. So if Alcaraz becomes a star, they will tune in. Um you know, if Coco Goff becomes a star, they will tune in. Uh, I, I'm not really so worried that it's going to, you know, take a long time for those things to happen. Now, there is a percentage. Uh, there is some truth to what you're saying, which is that star building occurs over time. And often, you know, it continues. Like, I, I know that there are plenty of big three fans out there who are recent big three fans. I know there are Federer fans whose first year of watching Federer was 2017. Like those people are out there. They exist. 
So, you know, it, it does sometimes take a long time for, you know, stars to build. Now, I think those are mostly young fans at the end of the day. Um, the ones that I'm referring to, like the ones who first watched Federer in 2017. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's something to it, right? Like 2019 Wimbledon, one of the biggest matches of all time from a TV rating standpoint, from a hype standpoint, was part of that history. Yeah. However, you know, did Federer Djokovic matches rate really well and draw huge audiences in the early 2010s? Heck yeah, they did. So that's kind of the answer to the question. You know, as long as there are stars, there's going to be, you know, tennis on a mainstream basis is going to be okay. Uh, this next comment really relates to that, um, but it's it's also different in its own way. Uh, it's from Josh. Hey, Gil, so much to cover with the US Open. Wanted to get your thoughts on something that's been bugging me. Uh, there were some commentators who, before the Sinner Alcaraz US Open match, were implying that TV ratings would drop off if Carlitos and Kyrgios weren't in the final and that Yannick isn't as marketable. Firstly, if tournaments and tours really struggle marketing someone with the cool with a cool surname like Sinner, tennis is in trouble. That's funny. Uh, but also, I found this bizarre because while I think extroverted Alcaraz will always probably have more fans, I do know quite a few people who watched the match and came out big Sinner fans. I really like both of them, but with the Wimbledon match, uh, but the Wimbledon match made me a bigger Sinner fan. Something about his steel and then suddenly lasering an 100 mile per hour shot off both wings really grabs me. It's his ice to Alcaraz's fire that draws me in. But it also seemed off to me because some of the most popular people in tennis history have been popular precisely because they were pretty cool customers on the court. Borg, Everett, Venus, and even Coco Goff right now. What are your thoughts on how commentators and fans discuss the marketability of players and popularity of the game? So, look, you, you lay out a lot of really uh, great points about why a lot of fans might gravitate towards Sinner. And I'm going to just leave those as they stand. But I want to tackle this notion that, you know, let's say there is a Sinner-Rude final. I want to tackle this notion that that is a problem, that that is an issue in tennis. I think anyone who thinks that's a big problem doesn't understand the financials of tennis at all. They have no understanding of it. Um, they don't understand that the sponsors have already paid, that the TV partners have already paid, and that in many of those cases, they are engaged in five to 20-year deals long-term deals. The checks are signed. Tickets, uh, maybe on the secondary market, they're affected a lot by what the matchups are, but at face value, already sold. Guess what? US Open isn't losing any money if it's an Alcaraz rude final. They already cashed their checks. Now, if tennis's popularity... Uh, shrinks over a seven-year period, let's say, or let's say it doesn't go up as much as it should. TV ratings uh, don't go up. 
guess what? Uh, sponsors will take notice. Those deals will be for less money. Those TV deals, they they won't get as much of a bump. They, they'll be for less money. All right, now we can talk about losses. Now we can talk about the tournament losing money. But, I mean, it was so ridiculous. It was such a successful first week of the U.S. Open, especially because of Serena. Huge ratings. Attendance records through the roof. And I saw that as well from... Um, from certain journalists that that it was going to be somehow a problem if it was a Sinner Rude men's final. Like that was going to hurt the tournament. Would the ratings have been low on on TV? Yeah. They would have been. Like let's let's live in reality here and acknowledge that they would have been low. Um because cuz Sinner just doesn't have the the mainstream appeal of Alcaraz yet. So uh the commentators are are correct that the ratings would have been lower. Um but where they're incorrect is in implying that that's a problem. That's not a problem. I'm sorry. Like that's just tennis. There's no problem there. Uh from Alex, "Hi Gil, I like the US Open." But it really does make itself hard to watch in Europe with how late some of the matches are on. They also do seem to put the most popular matches on late. I missed most of the matches that I wanted to watch because it was the middle of the night here. Surely it would make more sense for the popular matches to be on a time which works for both Europe and North America, those being the biggest markets for tennis. As a general rule of thumb, I think you know tournaments need to uh, mostly worry about their local, you know, time zone and whatever whatever is best for them for them. But but here's how it works in reality. And again, this comment relates. Whoever pays the events the most money, that is who they are going to prioritize. So I will tell you for the US Open, that is ESPN. And you know, Eurosport pays and um you know plenty of others pay. But uh, I can tell you that ESPN pays the most. I know that for a fact uh, because ESPN gets the prime booth on you know at Arthur Ashe Stadium, and everybody else is broadcasting up on the fifth level where the players look like ants. Believe me, I spend some time up there. Uh, so that's all you need to know. ESPN pays the most. So uh, as the primary business partner, the U.S. Open is going to suit ESPN's needs. And the ratings are going to be the highest in the prime time slot. Now, in the case of Alcaraz Sinner, um, for example, I do think the U.S. Open should make an adjustment. I think they should think about starting the night session slightly earlier so that there are less uh, night sessions that are going past 1 a.m. I don't think it's any problem for the U.S. Open to go late. In fact, I like that. I don't want it to be like Wimbledon. Uh, New York is the city that never sleeps. The West Coast of the United States um, is also a major viewership market, and they are fine. Um, so, like, I don't want the U.S. Open to, like, not go late. Uh, but I, I do think that they can find a little bit more of a balance there. Start slightly earlier. I think 6 p.m., start at one hour earlier, and it would make a world of difference. All right, unfortunately, uh, there are more comments that I really would have loved to have gotten to and couldn't, but uh, such is life. I got over 100 comments on this one. Um, appreciate it. Uh, your comments, you know, ask them again if you really like them, if you believe in them, and uh, maybe I'll get to them next time. 
my next video will probably be uh, Laver Cup over the weekend. All right. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.